Hey guys, I'm Chastity, and you're listening to the Ancient Conspiracies Podcast, where we connect the origins of some of the most popular conspiracy theories to biblical history. Well, welcome back to the final study of the Fall Feast of Israel. Today, October the 5th, 2022, is actually the Day of Atonement. So if you missed the podcast last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to the significance of what today represents. And if you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to episode three, which covered the Feast of Trumpets as well. This will give you a full picture of the history of these feasts, not only from a Jewish perspective, but prophetically for us as Christians as well. So I've mentioned this throughout the series on the Fall Feast of Israel, but I want to summarize again the purpose of the feasts that were commanded by God in Leviticus. In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples come to Jesus on the Mount of Olives and they have this dialogue with him asking, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Jesus goes on and on describing the details of what we should be watching for. And he concludes with, but of that day, no man knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven, only God knows. Now, many people take that to mean that we're all in the dark, that no one knows when he will be coming. It could be anywhere at any time. But this couldn't be further from the truth. There are hints all throughout scripture pointing to the exact season and time frame of Christ's return. And as we learned in episode three, the Feast of Trumpets was well known by the Jews as the feast where no man knew the day or the hour when it would begin because it was fully dependent on the sightings of the first slivers of a new moon in order to set the date. In fact, to this day, some Jewish sects still celebrate this feast over the course of two days because of this uncertainty. So although the scripture might have gone right over our heads, Jesus was speaking the terminology that his people would have widely understood. Now, further down in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives a parable of the virgins, five of which were waiting, lamps in hand, for the messenger who was coming to announce the bridegroom's arrival. The other five were neither watching nor prepared for this arrival, and they were left behind. And this represents those who will be left behind when Christ returns for his church. And the period of time in which the church is raptured and everyone else is left behind culminates with the second fall feast of Yom Kippur. Those who are left behind will have a very short period to get themselves right. Yom Kippur will be the day of judgment when your eternity is determined. Now we see in Revelation chapter 16, Christ says that he's coming like a thief in the night. And this is another well-known scripture that promotes the concept that Christ's return will be completely out of the blue. But Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, You, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day will overtake you as a thief. You are the children of the light and of the day. We do not belong to night or to darkness. So then let us not be like the others who are sleeping. Let us be awake and sober. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. So basically, Christ's return will not surprise those of us who are awake and watching, but also those who are awake will be raptured, and those who are asleep will suffer the wrath that God will pour out on those who are left behind. And this message is consistent throughout Scripture. 
In 2 Peter, this thief in the night passage is referenced again. But Peter goes on to explain that on that day, the heavens will also be burned up and disappear, and the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. But that we have a new heaven and a new earth to look forward to, where righteousness dwells. And this is where the Feast of Tabernacles falls onto the timeline. First comes the return of Christ, the Feast of Trumpets. Then comes the Day of Judgment, Yom Kippur. And finally, we have a new heaven and a new earth, and Christ will dwell among us. A reference to the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's explore not only how the Feast of Tabernacles was observed throughout history, but also how it prophetically applies to us as Christians. The Feast of Tabernacles is also called Sukkot, which means booths, and it refers to the temporary shelters that the Israelites built after their deliverance from Egypt. It was commanded that the Israelites observe this holy day by building temporary tents every year in remembrance of this event. So today, it's commonly celebrated by going camping, and many people pop up something temporary right in their backyard. The tabernacle represented God's original dwelling place on earth, that temporary tent which they carried with them through all the desert until his temple could be built. Now Sukkot is the seventh feast of the year, and it's observed in the seventh month on the Hebrew calendar, and it lasts seven days. And at the end of this feast, there's actually an eighth day that's also celebrated. Now, it's linked to Sukkot, but it's also technically a separate holiday. And it represents the thousand-year reign of Christ when all things are made new. It's known as a high Sabbath, and it represented a new beginning. Let me put it this way. Sukkot also goes by the name Simchat Torah. It's the time of year when the Torah portions come to a close. So for those of you that don't know, the Jews take the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and they divide it into portions. And each week throughout the year, a certain portion of the Torah is read until they've completed the entire Torah. And then it's known as Simchat Torah when they finished it. And this completion of the reading of the Torah always comes on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then they start all over. Well, do you remember what the first verse of the Bible is? Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is exactly what we're told will happen when Christ returns. The old will pass away and all things become new. A new heaven and a new earth. The literal fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the eighth day celebrates all things becoming new. The Feast of Tabernacles is actually the origins of where we get our concept for Thanksgiving. Did you know that Christopher Columbus was Jewish? 1492 was not only the year that he sailed the ocean blue, but it was also the year of the Spanish Inquisition when the Jews were exiled from Spain. And Christopher Columbus makes landfall in the Americas on October the 12th, 1492, right in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. So he brings with him the traditions from Sukkot, which is known to be the greatest feast on the Hebrew calendar. And it eventually becomes incorporated with the Autumn Harvest Feast that we know today as Thanksgiving, even though the first official Thanksgiving doesn't take place for another two centuries. It was influenced by the Jewish fall feast Sukkot. 
Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is a drastic change from Yom Kippur, which is known as one of the most solemn days of the year because it's the Day of Judgment. Sukkot is known as one of the most joyous days of the year, and as we've already established, it arrives after the harvest, and more specifically, the fruit harvest, grapes. Now, the barley harvest was traditionally in spring, the wheat harvest was traditionally in summer, and the fruit harvest always took place in fall. Matthew chapter 13 gives a parable for this exact harvest, quote, The field is the world, and the good seed is the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. In Revelations chapter 14, we're told the time to reap has come, and the harvest of earth is ripe. And then the angels take their sickles and they, quote, gather the clusters of grapes from earth's vine because the grapes are ripe. So this harvest of the earth, the rapture, is associated with grapes, which tells us that this harvest takes place in fall, since that's traditionally been the fruit harvest. And from grapes come wine, and with wine comes celebration. And what celebration would you assume to follow the harvest of earth, the rapture of the church? Well, scripture tells us that there will one day be a wedding ceremony when Christ returns for his bride. And what object do most Jewish marriages take place under? The hoopah! It's a glorified sukkah or tent, a booth, a tabernacle. Yet another reason why the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the biggest feasts on the calendar. It's a celebration of so many things culminating in one feast. So in the days of Solomon's temple on the Feast of Tabernacles, the priests would fill enormous bowls with seven-gallon buckets of oil. And they would be on the top of these very large posts, what we would think of as like a power pole. And they would use the old, worn-out priestly garments as wicks. In Josephus' writing, it said that once these bowls were lit, there wasn't a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that didn't glow from their light. And remember, Jerusalem was on a hill, and there was no electricity during those days. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jerusalem could be seen even from the Mediterranean Sea 30 miles away. This was a huge party. And during this festival, Jerusalem became widely known as the light of the world. You see where I'm going with this? Every feast, all males were required to present themselves before the Lord in the temple. But on three of these feasts, all Jews were to make the pilgrimage. On Passover on Pentecost, and on Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And during this time, they would gather around inside the temple and read the final scriptures of Torah. In John chapter 8, after Christ's Sermon on the Mount of Olives, he appears in the temple where a group gathers around him and he sits down to teach them exactly what traditionally happened during Sukkot. And in the middle of his teaching, he announces, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, just imagine the background of those huge lamps on display during the Feast of Tabernacles. They would have known exactly what he was referring to. He was the light that fulfilled this festival. 
And this exact scenario will come to fruition again. In Isaiah chapter 2, we're told that in the last days, the people will be gathered together, men, women, and children, and they will go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the temple of God, and Christ will teach his ways, exactly like he's done before. And he will judge between the nations and settle the disputes among the people, and that his house will be established with light, a reference to his return at the millennial reign when he will tabernacle with his people in a city on a hill as the light of the world on the feast of Sukkot. Now during this feast, Psalms 118 is the hymn that's sung. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. A connection to Thanksgiving that I mentioned earlier. And right in the midst of this hymn is the very center verse of the entire Bible. Psalms 118.8 It's better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. And this refuge that's referenced is the sukkah, the strong tower, where we run to and are safe under the protection of God himself. The hymn continues, The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Now, salvation is an English translation. You know what the Hebrew word for salvation is? Yeshua. Jesus, they've been singing it right there in scripture for thousands of years on the Feast of Tabernacles. The Lord has become my Yeshua. And the hymn concludes, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And this is exactly how this feast plays out every single Sukkot. As part of the ceremony, they take tree branches, boughs, in hand, and proceed up to the horns of the altar where a water ceremony takes place. It's called the water libation ceremony. Now, water throughout scripture is mentioned as coming from heaven. Water is life-giving. All ancient cultures relied heavily on agriculture for sustenance. And in order for the plants and animals to thrive, they need water, rain. So from water comes seed growth, and from seed comes wheat, and from wheat comes bread. And bread is what sustains life. This is why Christ calls himself the bread of life. Bread translated into Hebrew is lehem. And Christ was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, Bethlehem. You couldn't have bread without water. In John chapter 7, verse 37, we're told that in the last day, that great day of the feast, talking about the Feast of Tabernacles here, and more than likely in the middle of this water libation ceremony, Jesus stood and cried out, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He was once again trying to get them to see who he was, that he was the fulfillment of this feast. And only a few months later, Christ was put to death on the cross on Passover. And we're told that the soldier pierced his side. And do you remember what flowed from within him? Blood and water. And here's the final mind-blowing fulfillment of this Feast of Tabernacles. I saved the best for last. 
In Luke chapter 1, we're told the story of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. Now, Zechariah served in the temple, and according to 1 Chronicles chapter 24, there were 24 families in the priestly line of Levi. Each family served a term of two weeks spread throughout the year to ensure that there were priests in the temple all year long. 1 Chronicles lists each of these families and what time slot they were allotted during the year. Zechariah was from the family of Abijah, and in 1 Chronicles, we're told that Abijah was the eighth term during the year to serve in the temple. And based on this, we can tell exactly what dates his term would have fallen on. He served around the time of Pentecost. And we're told in Luke chapter 1 that while he was serving his term around Pentecost, an angel appeared to him right next to the altar and startled him. And he's told that God has heard his prayer and that his wife will soon bear him a son. And once his time of service was complete, he returned home and Elizabeth did indeed become pregnant. Now, if you follow the story in Luke, she was six months pregnant when Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus, is told by an angel that she too is pregnant. And this would fall right around the end of December. So nine months later, Christ's birth falls right smack dab in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles on the Hebrew calendar. The word literally became flesh and tabernacled among us. Do you know why there was no room in the inn? As I said before, the Feast of Sukkot was one of only three major feasts on the calendar when all Jews were commanded to travel to Jerusalem and come before the Lord. Millions of people would flock to Jerusalem for this Feast of Tabernacles, and this is why there was nowhere for them to stay, and therefore he had to be born in a manger. Now, the first time Sukkot is ever mentioned in Scripture is in Genesis 33, and Jacob went to Succoth, where he built a place for him and made shelters, tabernacles, for his livestock. This is why the place is called Succoth. So for thousands of years, these tabernacles or tents were not only built for themselves, but they also built them for their animals. In fact, I stumbled across an article from forward.com that talked about the Jews observing Sukkot during the 2020 quarantine. And there are adorable picture after picture of people building these for their animals. Hamsters, cockatiels, tarantulas, dogs, cats, all pictured under their little mini sukkahs during lockdown during Sukkot 2020. So the manger in which Christ was born was very likely a sukkah built for the animals during the feast of Sukkot. And the swaddling clothes used to wrap him? Well, swaddling clothes was the common term used for the old, worn-out, retired garments of the priests. The same garments that were torn into strips and used for wicks to light all Jerusalem throughout the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we're also told that there were shepherds watching over their flocks in the field during the time of Christ's birth. But there would never have been shepherds in the field in the middle of winter. In winter, Israel is usually covered in snow, and the shepherds would not be braving the mountainous snow with livestock in the middle of winter. In fact, the shepherds always brought their cattle in from the fields in the middle of October to get them set up for winter, usually right after the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And do you think Mary, being nine months pregnant, would actually ride a donkey 44 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem through the mountainous regions in 10 feet of snow in the middle of winter to get to Bethlehem? No. <laughs> All Jews were commanded to come for the Feast of Tabernacles. And in Luke chapter 2, we're told that Caesar Augustus was taking a census during that time. Now, do you think he would send his people out in the middle of the winter to take a census and gather the taxes? No. It would be much more convenient if you knew that all Jews were commanded to come to Jerusalem anyway. You would wait until they all came to you, take the census, and gather the taxes at one time. And listen to this. We're told in Luke that after Christ's birth, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple to present him to the Lord, because every firstborn male was required to be consecrated to God with an offering to the Lord. Now, Leviticus 12 describes all the rules that surrounded purification after childbirth, and we're told that after the birth, an offering to the Lord was to be brought to the temple. A year-old lamb, or if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could bring two doves or two young pigeons. And according to Luke, Mary brings two turtle doves as a sacrifice, which tells us that she couldn't afford a lamb. But little did she know, she actually brought the Lamb of God. So he was born during the exact feast which celebrates God's tabernacling among men. And one day he will return and tabernacle among us again. So many reasons to celebrate this incredible fall feast. Well, I hope this has blessed you as much as it blessed me to share it. These feasts of the Lord are incredible, and there's so much more to them that I just didn't have time to share. In the description of each feast episode, I added a link for you to find more information about each feast, if that's something you're interested in. Next week, we'll pick up where we left off prior to the feast series, and we'll learn all about how the fallen angel knowledge was reincarnated after the flood of Noah, how it was promoted by Nimrod, and how this knowledge came to be spread across the globe and adopted as all the pagan pantheons that we know today. As always, if you've enjoyed today's content, please hit the subscribe button, rate today's episode, and share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you next week.